where two lawyers and a real person talk about the law. I'm Kethry. I'm Stacy. And I'm Courtney Daly. And listen, we know what you're thinking. Plead the sixth? Isn't it supposed to be the fifth? But the sixth and fifth amendments go hand in hand when it comes to navigating the legal system. Or at least, so I'm told. <laughs> Today, Stacey and Courtney are going to be explaining the Sixth Amendment in all of its lovely, gory detail to me while I do my best to understand it. Um, so, Courtney, why don't you just go ahead and tell me what the Sixth Amendment is? Well, it's one sentence, but it's a very long sentence. <laughs> In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Whew, that was long. Yeah, I'm going to be completely honest. I did just sort of tune out about six words into that. Um, I'm pretty sure I got criminal prosecutions. No idea what you said after that. <laughs> the Sixth Amendment, it's filled with rights. And for, you know, it being only 100 words or so, it's very dense and filled with things that we just take for granted, I think, in our country in a lot of ways. So so tuning out most of it is completely reasonable because <laughs> there's a lot in it. <laughs> well, it seems like if there's a lot in it, it should probably be something that I, as a citizen of the United States, should know. What is the Sixth Amendment? How does it, how does it protect me? The Sixth Amendment is basically the amendment that protects you in criminal proceedings. So anytime... If you are um, accused of a crime or arrested in a crime, the Sixth Amendment is going to come into play. Um, we like to say, like, you know, when does an amendment attach? Meaning, like, when does that amendment apply to you? And the Sixth Amendment applies, um, the phrase is, at the start of adversarial proceedings. But honestly, like, what does that even mean? What? No idea. And then the, they is, go even further and say it only applies to critical stages in the adversarial proceedings. Oh my, okay, okay. Maybe, is there a way to say it in English and not in the legalese? <laughs> you know, we're, that's what we're trying to do here, right? So the idea is it starts when the state is essentially trying to build a case with you, a lot of your rights attached to you. And another way okay. to look at it is your Sixth Amendment attaches when, like, there's been a formal charge against you, like you've been indicted, which just means like, you know, they're officially accusing you of some sort of crime or um, an arraignment to like your first court hearing or something like that. Or it could simply be like you're arrested and you've been in front of a magistrate judge and the charges have been presented against you. Like, it's not as simple as like, okay, you're arrested. And then they're like, oh, and by the way, um, your Sixth Amendment applies to you now. It's like any constitutional amendment. It's a really gray area um, as to when exactly it starts. But but I, I will say that it definitely starts when you're in trial. You definitely have that. Once you are in a, in, in a courtroom and, and having trial proceedings, 
the Sixth Amendment fully attaches. Oh, good. I, I would really hate to be in a courtroom trying to argue with the prosecution by myself. <laughs> and um, so I guess we could just start by breaking down the amendment piece by piece and talking about what rights it's talking about at each stage. So um, I guess uh, the beginning in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial. So we can start with speedy trial. I mean, that whole sentence is just loaded, right? I know. There's <laughs> at least two two rights within there. Um, and a, a speedy trial itself is... Speedy, speedy trial is this idea that, you know, you the prosecution can't just sit on a case forever. They have to, at some point, bring you to trial, give you your right to the trial, um, and present their evidence against you. So you can't have a case hanging over your head forever and can't have what we call your liberty restrained, which I know is using a little bit of legalese, but your liberty is restrained when you're on bond because you have, you know, all of these conditions of bond that you may have to meet. Um, you've, you've got money that you're paying to a bondsman potentially, or if you're not um, paying money to a bondsman, you could be on a pretrial bond. There's there's all of these these freedoms that you don't have, even if you're not in jail. And if you're in jail, you obviously your liberty is restrained. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the reason why, there is a right to speedy trial so that, you know, you can get your, your freedom and your liberty completely back. So in other words, the, the, the government kind of has to go or get off the pot. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yes. Um, and it, in, in this country, we've got, well, there's in every one of these issues, there's going to be a ton of case law um, that kind of defines it further. And right now, the idea behind speedy trial is if it's been over eight months, it's probably been too long. It's what we have, what we call in the legal system, there are certain presumptions. And um, most courts are going to find that after eight months, there is a presumption that speedy trial right has been violated, you know, that, that the state is violating your right. But much like most presumptions, they're a little squishy and wiggly like jelly. Um, you know, you can just stick your hand in there and smush it up. And now it's no longer this solid, firm thing anymore. It's, um, <laughs> and so, you know, it can be overcome. Basically, the state can overcome this presumption that, you know, they violated your right. Um, there's a whole lot of factors to discuss in that. We're not going to go real in depth into that. But just know that, you know, it, there is a lot of factors that go into playing whether or not the right to speedy trial has been violated. And like a lot of your rights, you can give it up accidentally. You know, you can, your lawyer or you can do something that can cause your speedy trial right to be considered waived by the court. So it's one of those things that you got to be careful with when dealing with, with trials, you know, knowing that not accidentally uh, waiving it. Okay. So, so what about public trial? Is that, is that a wiggly law too? <laughs> I mean, every law is kind of like, well, does this, does, does that mean this? Does that mean this? And so basically with a public trial, it's like the trial has to be accessible to the public, but not necessarily like public access. Okay. And it, and it plays with the first amendment as well. It's not just a defendant's right to a public trial. Um, the first amendment also, you know, applies to the public's access to being able to find out about government government proceedings. And all of this goes back to the origination of our country and how the, our founders really wanted to make sure the government's held accountable. And the way the government's held accountable is by being watched by its citizens. So this is one of those ways that they made, they tried to make sure that happened. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's really hard to be shady if everyone's looking at you. <laughs> I mean, that's what we hope. Right? You would hope. Yeah. 
Sure, sure, sure. So I have a right for my trial to go quickly, and I have a right for everyone to keep an eye on the trial while it happens. What's next? So next is by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. So that's your right to an impartial jury. Um, or we like to say like a fair jury. And it, that, that sentence also handles your jurisdictional issues. You have a right to be tried in where you live, basically. They can't like arrest you in um, San Antonio and then take you to El Paso for trial. You know, um, typically, Mm -hmm. typically there are going to be some exceptions to that, but those exceptions revolve around the idea of this impartial jury. If it's impossible for you to get it in the jurisdiction you're in, then they have to let you go somewhere else to have your impartial jury. Oh, okay. Yeah. For example, if there's like a really high profile case, like a big murder case or something like that, they could, let's say it happens here in San Antonio, they could remove the case from the San Antonio courts and take it to like Austin or Dallas or something like that and try the case in those cities for fear that if they did it in San Antonio, because it's been such big news or because a lot of people were affected by it, they wouldn't be able to get an impartial jury in San Antonio. I'm I'm a little confused about about a certain part. It looks like the amendment says the district wherein the the crime shall have been committed. So why does that mean that the trial needs to take place where the crime happened? Generally. Well, if you, if you, okay, so if you really break down those words, uh-huh. <laughs> um, it says by an impartial jury of the state and district. So you're still trying to. It, it, it would be it, probably the closest place where they think they can get an impartial jury. Yeah. It's, it, it's, you're trying to get as close. So that's kind of like the district part of it is you're trying to get as close to where it happened. But the the important part, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, is not necessarily the location. Um, the courts in general through case law have prioritized um, the impartial jury part of it. That's right. Okay, got it. So when there's a conflict between two provisions of our Constitution, the courts have to decide which one is more important. And in this case, an impartial jury tends to take precedence over district and jurisdiction. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I I would much rather have a jury that isn't going to judge me unfairly than be close to home. Yeah, I feel like it's fair to say that it would stay in the state, though. Like I don't, I, I've never heard of a, a trial being moved across state lines. So, well, technically, the next line is which district shall have been previously ascertained by law. So you'll know. Like, there's a certain timeline of when you can ask for a change of venue, so you'll know where the trial is going to be before it happens. It's not like the day before the trial, they're like, oh, we're moving this to El Paso. Okay. And the idea of an impartial jury as a defense attorney, I don't really want an impartial jury. I want somebody who's going to be clearly in favor of my client, right? And the state wants the same thing. They want somebody who's going to be clearly in favor of prosecuting and to, you know, convicting someone. but we, we end up with an impartial jury because of the process. And in Texas, we call the process for dire. And you're going to hear us say that word quite a bit. Um, outside of Texas, it's called a voir dire. But we're here in Texas. We call it a voir dire. 
<laughs> and it's a very Texas thing to do to change the name of something that's been around for hundreds of years. Oh, of course. So, and so the, you know, just briefly, the way the process works during Vordire is the state talks to jury member or potential jury members. We talk to potential jury members. The judge talks to potential jury members. And throughout this whole process, it's like kind of a question and answer. We're gathering information on them to determine if they have any biases or prejudices that might not make them a good fit for our jury. And those people who clearly have biases who wouldn't who wouldn't be a good fit um, are, you know, challenged for cause. The judge just removes them from the panel. And then the state and defense both get strikes that they can use for pretty much any reason. Um, defense can use them for any reason. The state has to be careful not to use them for discriminatory reasons. They can't strike people on the basis of race or gender, for example. But what you end up having at the end is you have now eliminated a bunch of people and the people that are left, they're your jury. So it's not really jury selection so much as jury deselection. And so is there, is it guaranteed that that process is going to get you a jury that's impartial? I kind of hope not. I hope that we still end up with a jury that's in our favor. Well, yeah, but the idea of the impartial jury, you're not going to always get an impartial jury because you're not always going to get a jury panel that has enough people to give you an impartial jury. And that's why um, Vordar is so important is because if you do have a panel like that, you're going to want to try and be strategic to where you can, you know, if you have to, you know, bust the panel, that way you can try and get a new pool of potential jury members that is actually going to be enough to fill an impartial jury. And really, I'd rather have an impartial jury than one that's partial to the state. And at the end of the day, because we are all, the state's going to eliminate the jurors we really love. And we're going to take out the jurors that we know the state's going to love. So what what you end up with usually is jurors that neither one of us really care that much about. So they're probably impartial. (laughs) Sounds like a super scientific process that I cannot wait to learn more about and be very stressed over. Okay, so I get an impartial jury. My trial is super fast, super, super visible. What's next? Okay, then, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation. And this is just how you find out what you're charged with. And this doesn't apply until, you know, you get to Sixth Amendment stuff. So sometimes people don't know what they're being arrested for. You know, it happens all the time where they're like, what am I being arrested for? And they're like, oh, we'll talk to you later. And then they are never told what they're actually being arrested for. But in general, by the time you get to this process, through this process, It'll be charged through information or indictment here in Texas, um, information for misdemeanors, indictment for felonies. And that's just a charging document that's given to you. You're given a copy of it and it tells you what you're charged with in very clear language via the code, the statutes. Like they just copy the statutes and say, here, this is what you're charged with. Okay. I'm going to hope that that piece of paper is very clear indeed because this is so much information. Okay. So... I know what I'm, in theory, I know what I'm being charged with. What's next? Okay, so after you know what you're being charged with and uh, you have the right to be confronted with the witnesses against you. It says him, but you. Well, we know that the forefathers weren't exactly inclusive. (laughs) (laughs) And, And this is widely known as the confrontation clause. You'll have heard it on television, I'm sure. Never heard it in my life, but go on. Oh. Well, welcome to the confrontation clause. <laughs> yes. 
And and the confrontation clause is very, very muddy. Yes. So first we've got jelly and now we've got mud. I am not wanting to eat this. Um, but the core of the confrontation clause is you, you, you have the right to confront the witnesses against you. You have the right to, in open court, have those people brought. And if they're going to testify against you and that testimony is going to be used by the jury, you get to they get you get to look them right in the face while they're doing it. Yeah, I, I like to think that the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause is like, all right, well, I'll say it to my face. <laughs> sure. I like that. Also in the Confrontation Clause, that includes the defendant's right to be present at trial. So a trial against you can't happen without you there. Oh, that's nice. And also you get to cross-examine the, the witnesses against you as part of your trial rights. And that goes with the Confrontation Clause. Your attorney gets to ask that person questions. Okay. Yeah. But the Confrontation Clause only ap- applies at trial. You don't have the the right to confront witnesses at like preliminary hearings and stuff like that. And I guess I'm guessing it also means that I don't get to just sort of go to the witness's house and confront them there. Please don't do that. that please. It's a bad idea. <laughs> that would be a new crime that we would have to tack on to the other ones. Let's not do yeah. that. <laughs> and and with every part of this amendment, um the confrontation clause itself has a lot of things within it, like something called the Crawford rule, um, where certain evidence that is offered against the defendant um, could be excluded because of the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause if it's testimonial. Um, but if it's non-testimonial, and it's like a whole thing. I know I'm you know, testimonial. What is that? It's a whole thing. Yeah, you just do a bunch of words and Catherine went, what? I know. I <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to hold the what inside, but apparently it reverberated down the line. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Yes, yeah. I felt the what as I said it. I was like, there's going to be a what after this. <laughs> I'm glad that we've already got like a sort of internal Catherine-meter of like, does Catherine understand this? No. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so next, that was the com- well, that was a very brief um, confrontation clause. Um, so next is to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor. I'm going to say it out loud this time. What? <laughs> okay, so uh, that just means that you can present your own witnesses at trial. Um, you can present your own case. Oh. Oh, so I can do it by myself if I really want to. No. No. I mean, I have to have a lawyer. No, you don't have to have a lawyer, but we'll get to that. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, But the compulsory process is basically, you know, there's the subpoena power of the defendant to bring in witnesses. You know, the idea that, you know, a witness can't say, oh, yeah, I have important information, but I'm just not going to do it because I don't want to testify on your behalf because I don't want to upset the police or something. The subpoena power allows the defendant to bring those witnesses in. So if a defendant uses this right, someone has to testify? Yes. Oh. You may not like what they say on the stand if they really don't want to testify, but you have the right to get them on the stand. Is is the state able to force people to, to testify? Yes. Huh. Again, they may not like what the person has to say if they're being forced to testify. But yes, mm-hmm. the state also has subpoena process, sees subpoena power. But that's the great arm of the state. They have a lot of power, right? Sure. Well, law and order lied to me, but it's fine. Um, I will nurse my wounds and recover eventually. Um, So I can make witnesses come to court. What's left? 
Um, in my humble opinion, one of the most important is to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So the right to assistance of counsel is... My right to a lawyer! Yeah, your right to a lawyer. That's why we named this podcast, you know, Plead the, the Sixth, because we do think that going through the criminal process is a lot easier if you have a lawyer. It's certainly easier for me. <laughs> and it's not just having a lawyer, but it's having a competent lawyer. You know, the, the courts yes. have determined that it can't just be a lawyer who's just phoning it in. Although some of the things they've said are not incompetent representation or kind of crazy. Like there was that guy who fell asleep during trial. Do you remember that yep. one, Courtney? And they said that was fine. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, nonetheless, there is a, a certain set of standards that lawyers are supposed to meet um, and be competent in their representation of their client. And if they don't meet those standards, then, you know, that could be a reason you're, you know, if you do get convicted, that the case gets kicked back and you get a new trial. Oh, so I can I can go back to the state and be like, hey, I know that you already decided that I did this, but my lawyer was bad, so try again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're going to go to the appeals courts and ask them oh. to say that. And if they do say that, then they'll send it back down to the trial court for a new trial. Okay. Yeah. It rarely works. <laughs> just, so, just so you know, sure. it, it's a tough, it's a tough burden. There's, you know, the burden, the burden is low for competency. So, mm, got it. <laughs> so, the Sixth Amendment guarantees the well, it doesn't guarantee, but it gives you the right to effective assistance of counsel. And so, like Stacey said, it's a really hard burden to prove that someone was ineffective because um, there's kind of like it's like a two-prong thing that the courts have found for someone to be ineffective first. Um, and this is going to be some legal jargon, so bear with me, but hanging on. it's whether counsel's errors fell below objective standard of reasonableness. And I wish I could tell you kind of what that means, but no one really knows. It's kind of like you, when you, you know, it when you see <laughs> it kind of thing. Um, sure. It's a case-by-case case basis for sure. It is a case-by-case case basis. Um, and then the second prong is whether counsel's performance is prejudicial to the offense. So d- basically it's like even if um, someone is found to be objectively – Ineffective. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if someone is found to be ineffective on the first prong, the next question is, well, did their ineffectiveness actually make a difference? Mm-hmm. Like. For example, Mm, you could have an ineffective lawyer, but the state has like way beyond a reasonable doubt. Like, not that this would really ever happen, but like there's a hundred percent certainty that someone committed the crime. And even if they had like um like a dog sitting in the council's chair, like they would have been found guilty, then like the standard for effective counsel in that case is going to be a lot lower. than other cases, just because, like, even if they had effective assistance of counsel, would it have changed? And, and like with all law that, you know, you've already figured out, there are, um, there's a lot of confusing stuff to this whole idea of effective assistance of counsel. You know, somebody can be ineffective mm-hmm. and the error could have contributed to their conviction, but the case still not be overturned, you know, and it's because of like, there's different kinds of harm analysis in the, in the courts. So if it's not like clear error where it's like, maybe it contributed, probably it contributed, but not for sure it contributed. In some of those cases, they, they don't overturn it for those kinds of errors. But if there's a constitutional dimension, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, like what we're talking about here, 
um, where they're denied due process or something because of the error, then the, the analysis is a little lighter and it's a little easier to get it overturned. So what I'm hearing is it's not quite as easy as lawyer bad, give me second chance. You, it, it's muddy. And very, very hard yeah. to get. Okay. So now we've reached the we've reached the end of of the Sixth Amendment. Let's do a quick review. So I have the right to a speedy trial. It's got to be fast. It's got to be public, which means not that everybody has to be there, but that everybody has to be able to access it. Um, an impartial jury in a location that is close to where the crime has been committed, as close as possible, while still being able to achieve an impartial jury. And they had decided the district beforehand. Um, I need to be able to be informed of what I'm being accused of. Um, I need to be able to confront the witnesses against me and be able to cross-examine them. I need to be able to call my own witnesses for the case. And I have a right to a lawyer. An effective, an effective lawyer. And an effective one at that. And one thing one thing I want to mention real quick, too, is that the right to a lawyer isn't just like a right to a lawyer at trial. Once the Sixth Amendment attaches, you can have a lawyer during interrogations. If someone's interrogating you after, you know, formal charges have been brought against you, you can and should have an attorney with you. And then, you know, if there is identifications like if they want to do a physical lineup and your sixth amendment has already attached you have the right to have an attorney present at those physical lineups okay but in a lot of cop shows when they do lineups it they never really show attorneys being present at lineups yeah this is one of those things where the cops know that the lineup's not going to be admissible in court but they do it anyway just to help their case along um, oh, okay. Because once they kind of get confirmation on who they think did it, then they can maybe focus their investigation on that person. But the actual lineup itself, where they the cop gets on the stand and testifies that he had them stand in a lineup and that person identified them, that wouldn't be admissible in court. Let's talk about attachment real quick. Okay. Um, so, so we're we're talking a lot about like once it attaches, these are your rights. Once once it attaches, this is when you you have a right to a lawyer. When does it attach? So, kind of what we said at the beginning, it's it, the word is the start of the adversarial proceedings. So, you know, when you when the indictment is filed, when the information is filed, which are just like the charging instrument. So when they actually charge you with something, but it could also be, you know, like when you get arrested and you're, um, you know, you're in front of the magistrate judge or something like that. And they are proceeding against you in like, they're, they're going to go forward with whatever they're going to do. It could have attached there. Again, it's not like a, Oh, it's attached. It's not attached here. It's kind of like, it's jelly again, um, but or muddy. I guess it could be muddy too. But the important thing is, I prefer jelly. That, yeah, jelly. Um, but like, there is a definitive list um, of things that are critical stages, you know, out there. So the things that we know, you absolutely have a right to counsel, and because you know, custodial interrogation is one of them. You know, um, that the court already talked about. You absolutely have that right. If they're if you're in custody and they want to talk to you, you have that right. Um, to uh, counsel even before they formally charged you. Um, 
preliminary hearings where um, a potential, they call it a potential substantial prejudice to defendants' rights and hears in the confrontation. And that, you know, that that's as vague as we can get on that. <laughs> um, lineups and show-ups, you know, Courtney already talked about that. During plea negotiations and at the entry of a guilty plea, you have a right to counsel. Um, you have a right to waive counsel too. And that's another important right because you don't have to have an attorney like Kathy asked earlier. You can say, I don't want an attorney and you can go to a guilty plea in front of a judge. It happens all the time in Texas and smaller counties. Um, arraignments, um, the pretrial period between arraignment and the beginning of trial, trial during sentencing, your direct appeals and at parole revocation and well, probation revocation and some parole revocation proceedings. You also have a right to an attorney. Okay. That surprisingly all makes sense to me. The important thing to know is that um, you only, the Sixth Amendment only applies in um, cases in which jail time, like actual jail time could be imposed. So for example, if like you get arrested and you get um, a, a ticket or whatever and you have to go to municipal court, um, you don't have the right to an attorney in that case. You can still get one. You can, you know, you could always hire someone to help you with that, but you do not have a constitutional right to like a municipal ticket. Um, so other things that it doesn't apply to is like um, kind of going along with identifications is photo IDs. So like if a witness is viewing a photo or a video for identification purposes, um, you don't get an attorney present then. Um, there are some issues with that in general, like there could be some due process issues, but that's a different amendment. Um, and then uh, if they want to take like a handwriting sample or your fingerprints or a voice sample or blood samples, like in DWI cases, um, you don't get, they don't consider that something where attorney uh, gets to be present. Um, yeah, there's just two more Uh that I have a discretionary appeals and post conviction proceedings like habeas corpus. You don't have the right to N- neither. Neither of those make any sense to me. <laughs> I've assumed. Oh, we'll talk about them someday. Okay, sure. <laughs> so I I think I understand what the Sixth Amendment is now. It seems to protect people who have been accused of a crime, and it seems pretty important for for citizens of of this country to to have those protections and it's you know it's why courtney and i are able to do what we do you know i mean we're able to be criminal defense attorneys thanks to the sixth amendment okay well since i more or less understand what's going on with this i think that we're pretty much done with our episode is there anything else that you guys want to say um if anyone has questions after this they can feel free to reach out to us on our social media pages we have a facebook uh kraus daily law and a twitter at kraus daily law and also feel free to check out our website where we uh will have um where we will, where we will be posting our episodes and feel free to um comment on those pages talk to other listeners say what you think about the 6th amendment um or ask any questions that you have uh krausdailylaw.com is where we're located all right folks until next time keep pleading the 6th <laughs>